there are very few things in this world that display divisiveness like social media. You guys know what that's like, right? We've seen it, uh, we've been there. I'm old enough to remember what I think is the very first form of social media, which was MySpace. Anybody remember MySpace? It was awful, right? But that was back in 2003, and that was cool for a couple years. In fact, before we had MySpace, all we had was AOL Instant Messenger, which has a soft place in my heart because it helped me land Shelby as my girlfriend in high school, and so I'll always remember that. Yes. That lasted for a few years, and then in 2005, uh, Facebook came on the scene, right? And now Facebook swallowed everything up, and, and everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people are on Facebook, and since then, I mean, every form of social media has fallen into our lap that we can think of, right? We got things like YouTube, YouTube Skype, Flickr, Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, TikTok, threads, like all, everything, right? If you have an account with all of those, you might have a problem, okay? So just consider that. But what I've realized is that with these networks, among other things, they really just provide a way for us to fight with each other, right? Uh, just because people love to, to comment on things. They, they feel like they need to defend their point of view to anyone, especially strangers, right? I forgot the most important one, honestly, and that's the Nextdoor app, okay? So if you're not familiar with the Nextdoor app, that's the one that helps you see whether your, your neighbors are crazy or not, right? And so people watching is a lot of fun, but just scroll through the comments on Nextdoor and that's pretty entertaining as well. You know, disagreements have been around for a long time. These platforms really just give us a new way to voice uh, those moments, voice them to each other. I'm not immune to that. You're probably not either. We, we know what this looks like, but here's the reason why I want you to think about this as we start. It's because disagreements, they are not new to the church either. In fact, disagreement within the church has been around since when the church started and can still be a problem today. In fact, churches have split into two because of disagreements. People have left their churches because of disagreements. People have left their faith because of disagreements or how disagreements were handled within the church. And that, my friends, is a tragedy. So we continue our series through the book of Romans, going chapter by chapter. We get to the point in, in Romans where the apostle Paul He's got to address the elephant in the room, and that's the issues that the church is facing and the disagreements that arose from them. You, hopefully you've picked up on this as we've gone through this the last few months, is that Romans is primarily a theological book. It, it outlines our faith, it helps us understand the things that we believe, that's Paul's primary purpose, but the last few chapters actually end very practically. Now, I wanna show you a quote that's from the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She wrote a book and she had this to say. She says, once asked how we could be friends, given our disagreement on lots of things, Justice Scalia answered, I attack ideas, I don't attack people. I bet if we all lived by that mantra, our world would be a better place. The problem is, is that we don't always do that. We have a really hard time separating the issue from the person. And when we can't separate the issue from the person, we begin to live in a way that actually brings about division rather than unity. Now, I know what you're probably thinking on some level. It's like, what does, what's this have to do with me, right? Well, I don't, I'm not one of those crazy people on social media, which to that I would say, are you sure about that? Because you might be, all right? 
But secondly, you may feel like, uh, I don't really feel like I've got issues or, or, or problems with, with anyone, which maybe that's true, probably not, but maybe it is. Regardless, how we treat people that we have a difference of opinion with is actually what this text is about that we're gonna read today. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, do I really treat people, do I really treat other people the way that Jesus expects me to? Not have obligation, but out of love. That's what I hope to show you today. We're gonna be in Romans chapter 14. So if you got your Bibles or your Bible apps on your phones or whatever, turn to Romans chapter 14, because we're gonna read a, a portion of it, but Romans chapter 14 is one idea, okay? I didn't really have a choice on what to, to, to teach about today because Romans 14 is solely one idea and it bleeds into chapter 15 as well. And so I want you to be able to interact with the text a little bit. But before we uh, read our portion, I just wanna read you the first verse of chapter 14. It says this, "'Except the one whose faith is weak "'without quarreling over disputable matters.'" I actually like the way the NLT renders this. I want you to listen to this. It says, accept other believers who are weak in faith. And then he says, and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Paul lays the groundwork for this discussion, this argument right here. Accept others when it comes to disputable matters. You see, the basic issue is that some church members cannot distinguish between matters of basic principle, basic principle and individual preference. The weak, he says, the weak don't know the difference. And so as Paul writes this, in the original language in the Greek, this word that is in our English that says disputable matters is one Greek word, and it's this word dialogue ismai, and it means reasoning that is self-based, okay? Disputable matters, reasoning that is self-based. They've been called matters of conscience is another way to describe it. It's a matter of which God has not spoken in his word. It's not clearly forbidden, it's not clearly commanded, right? You understand what, what this means, disputable matters? This type of behavior can and has gotten ugly over the years in the church. These are things like uh, what you should wear to church. What, what type of instruments can you use? What titles should you give to people? All of those things fit within this category. In Rome, to where Paul is writing, in Rome, the dispute mainly had to do with with eating, what you could eat, and what days were holy, what, what days you should worship, right? And so Paul says, with disputable matters, accept the other person. Why does he say that? Why, why would Paul lay it out like that? Well, to understand this, you've gotta understand the historical context to which this is written. And so I want you to become a student for a minute because I gotta give you some background and history to what's happening. Church in Rome had been set up years before Paul ever visited before he even wrote this, it had been set up for, for years. And in Rome, in Paul's day, it had excess of over 1 million people living in Rome. Most of them were slaves. But if you follow along with me for a minute, and I hope that you do, you'll see how this historical background has a profound impact on our text. The Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54, actually expelled the Jews from Rome. He, he kicked them out. He told the, the Jews that they couldn't live there any longer. You see, in Rome, they were living under this mantra that was called Pax Romana. Maybe you remember this from history class, Pax Romana. It means peace in Rome. And so th they had this. It was established by Caesar Augustus, who lived during Jesus's time. And it reigned from about 27 BC all the way to 180. And so this mantra of peace in Rome basically meant anything that brought about unrest, anything that brought about disagreement, anything that brought about um, people arguing with each other or, or whatever it was, anything that didn't promote peace 
in Rome's eyes, was not welcome. And so this is what they were living under. And so this became a problem because one of the big issues that Rome had with Jews who became Christians were that they did not submit to Caesar as Lord. Only Jesus was Lord. And in fact, they began preaching and teaching that um, not only was Jesus Lord, but there is only one God. And actually there is only one way to salvation. And this was the predominant message of the, of the Christians living in Rome. And this became a problem for the emperor because although Rome ex- respected the ancient Jewish religion, they respected it because it was old, it had been around for a very long time. Claudius was fed up with the disrespect of not submitting to Caesar as Lord and everything else that came about in the year 49, he expelled all Jews from Rome. He kicked them out. They had to leave their home. They had, they had to leave. This is actually recorded in Acts chapter 18, verse two, where Luke writes this. There he, talking about Paul, met a Jew named Aquila, Aquila, a native of Pontius who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. See, so he's right there in their scripture. The Roman author, Suetonius, briefly mentions that Claudius expelled the Jews from the city because of, quote, continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. What that basically means is that they were kicked out of Rome because of Christ, who was crucified decades ago. And I find it fascinating. So the Jews were gone. They're kicked out of the city. And while the Jews were expelled from Rome, the church in Rome found its uh, guidance and leadership under the Gentiles. Now, they weren't kicked out. That's another story, okay? They actually got to stay in Rome. As the Jews were gone, the Gentiles lead the church and they led for roughly five years and they begin to realize that they can not only survive, but operate without the Jews. The Gentiles, you know this, they, they live and operate and and, and their beliefs are a little bit different than the Jews and, and how they uh, live out their faith. And so five years after their expulsion, Claudius' reign ends, the emperor Nero rises up and takes over. And in the year 54, Nero allows all the Jews back into the city. Okay, you might see some problems on the way. When the Jews return to their home congregation, they recognize the Gentiles had been leading differently And to their thinking, they thought they would take leadership back. This is our church. This is our faith. The Gentiles didn't want that. They'd been leading for five, can you imagine? They'd been leading for five years without the Jews. And they say, hey, we kind of got this. And so an opposition arises about who's right, what it means to be counted among God's people. What laws do you have to follow? Everyone's a God follower, okay? We We have that in common. Everyone's a God follower, But there are problems, and this is the context under which the book of Romans is written. It's so important for us to understand this, especially as we read chapter 14. To make it even messier, you need to understand this. We learn this, that Rome, rather than one church, I often, I don't know how your brain works, but I often think that when I read these letters in the New Testament, Paul's writing it to a church and they go and deliver it to the church and then they read it to the church. But actually Rome, what we learned was made up of about five household churches. You read that in chapter 16. And above that, we read in the very first chapter of Romans that it was not written to the church at Rome, but rather all who were at Rome. And so you have a mess of a leadership, who's in charge, everyone's in different places. It's in shambles on some level. And Romans chapter 14 addresses these issues. 
Okay, so history class is over, all right? Uh, but this is important for us to understand as we jump into this chapter. We're not gonna read the whole thing, but we're gonna read a portion of it because the theme is the same all throughout the chapter. So with all of that said, I wanna invite you to stand with me so we can read our text in Romans chapter 14. We're gonna read verses 13 through 19. This is a way to honor God's word as a public reading of his scripture as a part of our service. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good of spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. All right, guys, you can be seated. This is just a snippet of this chapter, of this entire dialogue, and what we learn from it should help shape the way that we treat people. And so I've broken our message down into two main ideas that we can take away. And if you'd like to take notes, the first one is this, is the life of liberty. The life of liberty. And what I mean by that is recognizing the freedom that comes through Jesus. Again, the major issue in the Roman church is what the Jews and the Gentiles believed regarding eating and holy days. The Jews, maybe you know this, the Jews, they operated in, in, and abided by the old covenant laws regarding food, especially food that was sacrificed to idols. And so in Rome, there actually even became a sect of people who became vegetarians, not because it was commanded, but rather because it was the only way that they could think was the safest way for them to eat food because they couldn't be sure that everything was kosher, right? And, and so they couldn't, be sure that the meat that they bought in the market hadn't just left a temple of a false god in a sacrifice. And so the cosmopolitan setting of Rome made this very difficult. I mean, just think of it this way. Just imagine a Jewish Christian watching a Gentile Christian leave the marketplace and they've got a big slab of ribs, right? <laughs> they're carrying and they're walking down the, the street in the alley and, and uh, the Jewish Christian sees them and is like, hey, you, what, you, what are you doing with those ribs? And he's like, oh, I'm gonna have a big barbecue for the family tonight and we're gonna have a great time. And in that moment, the Jewish Christian looks at the Gentile and believes that what they're doing is wrong, right? Because I've been raised to worship and honor God by, by uh, abstaining from that type of stuff. But meanwhile, the Gentile Christian is taking that meat home and they're gonna cook it and they're gonna have a party and they're gonna celebrate and worship God in community, you see the problem, right? What, what comes to the surface? Jealousy, judgment, anger. Those are all the things that rise to the top and that's what became the problem in Rome over and again. The easiest solution, honestly, would have just been to form two churches. You could have had the church of the carnivores and the first church of the vegetarians, right? I've seen worse church names, by the way, but... You know, Paul has a more noble solution. What's he say? 
don't pass judgment. That was his solution. Here's what else he said. We didn't read this. This is a verse in verses five and six of Romans 14. He says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul outlines the reality that everyone is actually doing what they're doing for the Lord. No one's acting out of rebellion. No, one's, no one has poor motives here. And when that is the case, you shouldn't pass, pass judgment. You shouldn't look for arguments. Remember, Paul said this, I am convinced, being fully persuaded by Jesus, that nothing in itself is unclean. Paul landed on the side of liberty, right? The side of liberty, that you are actually free from the law in, in these type of things because of Christ. And so he says, when it comes to disputable matters, we have to allow some liber liberty. That is key for, for the church to understand that. But here's the deal. This is what I've noticed at least. Some people love to argue. You know anybody like that? You sit next to anybody like that? Some, some people love to argue. And while it's important to stand up for the truth, please hear me. It is important to stand up for the truth. We must be aware of thinking that everything is equally important. And that's because not every truth is equally important in the church. Oh, pastor, wait a second. No, I want you to read this and let it sit with you for a second. And when you come to the reality that this is not only true, but it's biblical, let's move on. You understand what I mean, right? Not everything, not everything holds the same weight. It's the saying that, that, that you've heard before, choose which hill to die on, right? You've, you've heard that? There are some battles that are not worth it based on what is at stake, and that is unity. Not uniformity, not that we all believe and agree on everything, but unity is what is at stake. And so you have to think of it, I believe, in, in levels. You gotta put these things in levels in your mind. Levels to which you should take your place on the hill. And so here's how I think of it. Level one are matters that are essential for salvation. These are the things that you have to agree on. These are the things that we have to see eye to eye on. These are things that uh, about like the triune God, that uh, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, an actual and literal resurrection of Jesus. We have to agree on certain things to actually have the same faith and be on the same journey together. So that's level one. These are the things that you have to stand up for, but there's a level two as well. These are matters that are important to the faith in the church, but they're not essential for salvation, right? These are things like, Maybe eschatology, what you believe about the end times. Uh, is there gonna be a rapture? Who's gonna get rapture? Is it gonna be a thousand years? Like, what, how's that gonna work? Does it really matter? It's important for us to talk about and maybe we could get on the same page, but actually what you believe about those things isn't gonna determine your salvation. And then there's a level three, which are matters of preference. And honestly, this is where we spend a lot of our time arguing is the level three in matters of preference. And, and what I believe is that Paul is talking about right here in Romans chapter 14 is a level three. It's a matter of preference or indifference. He calls them disputable matters. And friends, when it comes to these type of things, this is, we need to take Paul's advice and to not judge and not to argue. Rather choose 
liberty. You probably heard this quote within the church before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Right? That's a quote that's born out of the restoration movement. And what it really is are those levels in a compact sentence. Right? It's the idea that we unite on the most important things. We come to agreement on the most important things. On things that are not essential, we give liberty and to everything else we give love. Because if we divide over non-essentials, tearing down the work of God, we're no better than the world. The church is no different than the world. We need to differentiate between commands and preference. And in the in-between, we love. See, actually, Paul sum this up, I love this, he summed this up at the end of the chapter when he writes this, he says, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God, <laughs> right? Wouldn't our world be a better place if we just did this? Wouldn't the church be a more peaceful place if we just did this? Whatever you believe about these things, if it's disputable, if it's a matter of preference, if it's a level three issue, we don't pass judgment. We don't look for arguments about these things. We keep it between ourselves and God. My kids, they like to, they have a difference of opinions on time. I don't know if your kids um, do this or not, where they disagree on things, or I don't know if you've been in a place, okay, so my kids are young, they're six and eight. Now, if you've been in a place where you've been driving in a car and the kids are in the back seat. And uh, you're paying attention to where you're going and you're driving everything like that. And you don't hear the whole conversation. But at some point, this is what you hear from the backseat. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Over and over and over again, right? Have you been there? Has anybody been there? Is it just me? All right? And at some level, I, I just, I don't stop the car, but I just kind of lean back and I say, it doesn't matter. I wouldn't yell, okay? Like, I would, I would never do that, right? But, but I would, I would, like, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong, right? It, it just, it, it doesn't, just stop bickering. That's all I want, just stop bickering. And guess what? Nine times out of 10, it doesn't matter what they're arguing about. It, it just doesn't. It's not that important. So when Paul says, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God, it's the same idea. Just stop. In fact, we often, often tell our oldest, Willow, who's eight, we give her a lot of responsibility. We, we tell her, listen, just let your brother think what he wants to think, right? Have you ever said that to your kids? Just let him think what he wants to think. Even if you're right, it doesn't hurt you. Just let him think what he wants to think because it's not gonna hurt you. Again, it doesn't matter that much. And I can't think of a better illustration for what Paul is doing here with the church in Rome. Okay, you disagree on some things, just calm down. It's gonna be okay. Just, just calm down. Let them have some liberty in what they think and what they believe about these things. It's not gonna hurt you. There are absolutely things that you need to stand up for, for what are true. But can we all just recognize and agree that not everything, not everything is that important to argue and to grumble about? Here's the problem. This not only happens in face-to-face -face conversations, in fact, that's getting even more rare these days. But this happens on social media. This happens behind the scenes in gossip as well. What you say about others, not even to their face, can bring division in the church when we don't treat people the way that we're supposed to. So we have to be careful with this. All I'm saying is this, is to leave some space for liberty. 
Maybe ask yourself these questions. Number one, these are the questions I would ask. How important is the issue? How important? Honestly, just ask yourself before you decide to confront someone, how important is the issue? Or maybe even ask yourself this, how sure am I of my position? Like, is there a room that I could be wrong here? Is there a room that maybe my belief about this is not 100% fact? Is there room for uh, error there? Or maybe the best one is, can we disagree and still be members of the same church? If you're to ask yourself or go through those questions before you confront or try to persuade someone one way or another, this will help bring unity in the church, which is what Paul is addressing in chapter 14 of Romans. But beyond giving liberty, there's another principle at play in this text that we all need to recognize and to follow, and that is the life of love. This is really predominant thing that we're gonna see. It's one thing to practice and, and to recognize your own liberty, right? My own liberty in, in my relationship with Christ. It's another to allow someone else to be able to experience and have their own liberty because it requires love. It requires love. When Paul ties these, this conversation together, when he puts it all together about food and holy days, here's what he says in verses 19 through 21. He says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. I want you to follow with me for a few minutes here because these words have such a profound meaning on what it looks like to live in Christian community, to have unity and to treat people with love. Paul reiterates his stance. You saw it in there. He reiterates his stance. All food is clean. I think he makes that very clear in how he feels. All food is clean. But the truth that no food was wrong to eat was not easy for pious Jews to accept. They had been raised to honor God by abstaining and avoiding certain foods. That was their way of worshiping on some level. And so he urges those who he calls strong in their faith not to force others to violate their conscience, right? That's what he says. And on top of that, he asks them not to partake in it around them for their own conscience. You caught that, right? This is is important. Even though Paul agreed with the strong believers, those who are strong in their faith, that all food is clean, maybe every day is alike. He he agreed with them on that. He urged them not to partake in it if it makes someone else stumble. Why? Why why do some people have to restrict themselves for others? That doesn't seem fair. That kind of seems like it's missing the point. They should have to learn the truth and to accept it, right? Well, maybe the answer is slightly more involved than, than that. Maybe the answer involves love. Here's why I know this. Paul doubles down on this concept as he also writes to the church in Corinth. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter eight. He says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. You may have the right, he says, you may have the right, but it's not always the best choice for your fellow, fellow brother or sister in the church. And we've got to see this. Listen, at times, not always, At times, you should relinquish your freedom to avoid division. Not only is that the command for someone who is strong in their faith, but someone who's mature in their faith. It's not easy. 
It, it, it's, it's not easy to accept. It's not easy to practice at times, but it's the truth that we see over and over again. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And here's why this is so significant. The reason that we operate in this mode, this type of mode, don't miss this, okay? The reason that we do this is because of the example of Jesus, all right? This wasn't just some idea that Paul mustered up and created because he wanted everybody in the church to get along. No, this is a divinely inspired way of living that was modeled through the life of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was at the end of his life and he sat around a table with his disciples, one of the things that he told them was this in John chapter 13, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. These words by Jesus held so much weight. A a new command, right? Listen, they have plenty of commands already. They have plenty of laws. In fact, that's why the Christians in Rome are fighting and arguing is over commands and laws. A new command, love one another as I have loved you. That's not the same thing that they had heard before, right? If you're familiar with um, Jewish culture, even the life of Jesus, you know that they grew up with what we call the, the silver rule, right? Which is like, don't do anything to others you wouldn't want done to you. That's a pretty common thing. Don't treat others the way you don't want to be treated. When Jesus lived, he introduced what we call the golden rule, treat others how you want to be treated, right? And and so we had that. But after Jesus had lived his life, after he had set the example, after he had had walked among his disciples for a couple years, he ends the story by giving what I call the platinum rule, which is to treat others, to love others as I have loved you. That is different. As Jesus has loved, so I must love. Like when he called Matthew a despised tax collector that everyone hated. He said, come follow me. You can be with me. Like with the woman at the well that she didn't even want to go out in public because she wanted to avoid everybody else. But Jesus met with her, he talked with her and he spoke truth and love into her life at the same exact time. Like the woman who was caught in adultery as she was in the, the, the lowest moment of her life, as she was standing before men who wanted to judge and to kill her. Jesus stooped down and did not judge or condemn her, but showed her grace and mercy and love. Like Nicodemus, who was ashamed to even meet with Jesus because of what other th- people would think of him, Jesus decided, I can meet with you at night. Or like later in the story, when the apostle Peter would deny and disown Jesus a couple times in front of everybody, and Jesus would reinstate him and give him the keys to the church. Or at the end of the story, as Jesus would choose to sacrifice himself on the cross for each and every one of us, even though he didn't have to. As Jesus has loved, so I must love. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of this principle. In fact, the reason that you got out of your bed today and showed up into this place is born out of the gospel truth that Jesus had the right to avoid death, but he chose to embrace it on our behalf. 
He had the right. He didn't, he didn't have to face death, but he embraced it for us. And because Jesus, who was perfect, died on a cross and resurrected, each and every one of us have the chance to live a life that will glorify God and advance his kingdom on earth. But it's only gonna happen by how we live and how we treat other people. This is what it comes down to. You notice what Jesus said, right? He said, everyone will know you are my disciples by what? Not by how smart you are. Not by if you know all the theological talking points, not by what political stance you take, not if you agreed on all the things that nobody even knows for sure, but he says, if you love one another. That's how the world will know you are followers of Jesus if we love one another. And what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 14 really comes down to loving one another. Two sets of Christians. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, different beliefs on how to live, what was right, what you should believe, all these ideas about how to follow Jesus. Does Paul give them the right answer? Does he tell them to stop being babies? No, he tells them to love each other and to look out for each other and to realize what is worth arguing about and what is not. And to ultimately, for some people, to let go of your right if it hurts someone else. The world that we live in is dark and divided. But the church, this place in here, should be the hope of the world. This should be where people find hope. Jesus told his followers, you are the light of the world. And if we wanna fulfill the mission that Jesus has for us, we have to put aside these non-essentials, these things that actually don't matter all that much and strive towards unity because what's at stake is gospel relevance for another generation that needs to know Jesus. That's what's at stake. I need to tell you this because this is what I've seen. People, people are done looking for churches who are trying to force everyone to believe all the same things about all the same things. They are looking for Jesus and how we treat people and how we come together, how we love people, how we work together despite our differences. And here's why this is so important. I wanna end with this. At some level, ideally, at some point, people are gonna walk through these doors who are people of no faith and they're gonna come into this place and they're not gonna share the same beliefs about all the things that you believe. That's our hope is that those people come into this place. Then what? Then what do we do? The Barnett Group did a research survey on what people of no faith, follow this, on what people of no faith are looking for when it comes to faith conversations. Here's the result. It says, in our survey, responses are clear. The top thing people look for in a conversation with a Christian is that they listen without judgment. People of no faith are also hoping for honesty about questions and doubts, and they don't want forced conclusions. The best learning environment they express is one marked by care and consideration. And here's the deal. If you cannot do that with Christians inside the church, you're not gonna do it with unbelievers. This is important. This is our witness. This is, this is the mindset and the attitude that we have the opportunity to show the world the love of Christ by how we unite. The church at Rome was complicated. It had its issues. They're, they're very different than we are, but they're not all that different. We have to be about the same things that they were on some level and that we are the type of church that promotes the gospel above everything else and finds unity with others because of that. And here's the bottom line I want you to take away today is that the cost of church unity is love. There's always a cost. It, it always costs something. There's always a price. And if you want unity, if you want togetherness, it requires 
love. And so I wanna end our time with a question for you because the application for this is different for each and every one of you because I don't know your lives. You're all different. You all think different ways. There's a question that you need to ask yourself is this, is where are you majoring in the minors? And here's what I mean by that. Where are you drawing a line, a line with, with other Christians, with your family, with your kids, with the church that doesn't need a line? It's okay to talk about, but to argue and to judge, where are you majoring in the minors? And then I want you to ask yourself another question. What does love require of me.